I'd like to welcome everyone uh, this evening. Uh, my name is Peter Trubowitz. Uh, I'm the head of the International Relations Department and the director of um, the U.S. Center uh, here at the LSE, which is hosting um, this evening's um, uh, lecture. Um, it's a great pleasure to uh, introduce tonight's speaker, um, Professor um, Stephen Skoranek, the Palatia Parrott Professor of Political and Social uh, Science at Yale University, and this year the Winant Visiting Professor of uh, American Government uh, at the Rothermere Institute uh, at Oxford. Um, <clears throat> Steve has published um, five uh, major books, uh, including um, Building a New American State with uh, Cambridge, uh, the Politics Presidents Make with uh, Harvard, which won the J. David Greenstone Prize for the best book in politics and history, uh, and the Richard Neustadt Prize for the best book uh, on the American presidency. Um, uh, the Search for American Political Development uh, with Cambridge, uh, co-authored with Karen Oren. Uh, Presidential Leadership in Political Time with uh, Kansas. Uh, and The Policy State, his newest book, uh, also co-authored um, uh, with Karen Oren. Um, uh, you know, in, in 2017, uh, the politics presidents uh, make um, was also awarded um, the American Political Science Association's very prestigious um, legacy award for a, in quotes, a book, essay, or article published that has made a continuing contribution to the intellectual development of the fields of presidency and executive politics. And certainly this is a very apt description of this seminal book on the American presidency. Um, Steve's known for many things. Uh, his books appear on American politics readings list as well as um, at universities uh, across the United States and beyond. Uh, he's played um, a really crucial, central role in the development of uh, the field called American political development uh, in the U.S. Um, and, uh, and launched um, the journal of that name, American Political Development, with, with Karen Oren. Um, uh, geez, a couple decades ago, I think, at this point. Um, along the way, he's found time to do other things. He's designed a TV miniseries with um, PBS called The American President. And last but not least, he teaches year in and year out very popular courses on American politics um, at Yale. It's a great privilege to have Steve uh, with us tonight to share his thoughts about the Trump presidency, how we should think about it in historical, in the context of American history and political development, or as he would put it, in political time. Um, and as usual, after the lecture, what we'll do is we'll open it up to questions. I'll do my best to get everybody in. Um, and for those of you on Twitter, it must be there somewhere. Yes, it's LSE, U.S. Trump. If you haven't already put your phone to silent, please do that. And finally, please join me in giving Professor Stephen Skoranek a warm LSE welcome. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for having me down uh, to share some thoughts about the Trump presidency. I hope that you'll bear with me. I'm dealing with some springtime laryngitis. <clears throat> and this is a long talk, but we'll try to get through. So, you know, uh, Trump is so easily pegged as 
different uh, that it's hard to think about his presidency any other way. Over the past few years, all prior experience has become a gauzy backdrop to something not normal, unprecedented, off the charts. Just last week, Joe Biden in his campaign launch video dismissed this president as a freak occurrence, an aberrant moment in time. It seems that the one thing on which everyone agrees is that this is a president like no other. So first, a nod to the obvious. Trump is anomalous in style, character, background, and outlook. He's a mesmerizing iconoclast whose indifference to norms invokes anxiety and adulation, anger and ardor with equal intensity. Historians might reach for earlier examples of the president as showman, but none has so clearly, clearly prioritized the performance or so definitely used his disregard for best practice as part of the act. Others may have been ethically challenged, but add in the other elements on display, the crude, mocking, purposefully divisive behavior, the narcissism and impetuousness, the incessant prevarication and the conflicts of interest, the strong-arm rejection of any authority that challenges his own, add in those elements, and the relevance of other reference points quickly fades. Trump has been called out as incompetent, unfit, ill-informed, undisciplined, untrustworthy, childlike, cult-like, sickening, crazy, a fraud, a phony, a liar, a con man, a moron, an idiot, a jackass, a crank, a racist, a train wreck, a danger, and those are the charges that have been leveled by fellow partisans and former associates. This is, to be sure, a whole new category of spectacle. But with all due regard for the values that are currently under siege, not normal is a characterization that misses a lot. Much that might sharpen our understanding of what's new in this moment is, in fact, lost on it. Presidents are products of the political system, like them or not, there are no aliens. By the same token, normal is a suspect category. There are no ordinary presidents. Just as surely as incumbents, as incumbents reflect the system that produces them, their instinct is to change the system and to make it their own. Intruding upon received commitments and priorities, the powers of this office invariably shake up norms and alter the political landscape. Trump's campaign anticipated a great disruption, but all presidents disrupt things. Trump is challenging boundaries and others are trying to contain him. There's nothing new in that. The standard questions then still apply. How is this disruption configured politically? How deep does it go? How and with what consequences are boundaries being redrawn? My interest in presidential leadership lie here in the political impact of disruptions variously configured and what they tell us about the political system itself. Will the Trump effect confirm or depart from patterns of intervention observed in our past? What might the deviations tell us about system dynamics more generally considered? These concerns prompt me to treat Trump less as a personality type than as a political type. And the political distinctions I want to draw make use of the full range of historical cases. So I want to take this president's measure against a recognizable kind of leadership challenge to consider others who acted similarly, 
in similarly structured political situations to identify what's new in this case against the baseline of characteristic political effects. So to that end, in previous work, I've identified two long-running temporal frames for understanding the politics presidents make. One I call political time, the other secular time. If there's something of systemic interest that's new in the political leadership of Donald Trump, it should be found at the current intersection of those two timelines. So let me sketch each out first. Political time refers to presidency-driven sequences of change. Here we find incumbents one to the next, reacting to the work of their predecessors, intruding upon the prior arrangement of interests and priorities, and attempting to set a compelling political project for their own interventions. Most presidents lose control over the impact of their leadership and the political meaning of their actions. Very few are able to secure the projects they set for themselves. Nonetheless, their disruptions persistently drive political change, and they've done so in certain characteristic ways. And it's those patterns that are of interest. They're of interest because they reflect basic system dynamics. The rare successes tell us a lot about how political leadership works in the American presidency. It turns out that those who have been most politically effective in exercising the powers of this office were those who were least inhibited in employing the presidency as a battering ram. The greatest political leaders to hold the presidency, Jefferson, Jackson, Lincoln, Franklin Roosevelt, these presidents shared an opportunity to repudiate their inheritance forthrightly and thoroughly. They used that authority to break decisively with the received ways of doing things and to radically recast political priorities. Changing things on their own terms entailed a wholesale reconstruction of the political system. The last president who came close to doing something like that was Ronald Reagan. The Reagan revolution repudiated the liberal orthodoxies and governing priorities of the previous half century. It stamped American government with a new set of commitments. It reset the political clock. It inaugurated a new political sequence. You can hear reconstructive tropes running through Trump's leadership as well. They echo in his insistence that the system is rigged and broken. You hear them in his relentless repudiations of the Obama administration and in his choice of Andrew Jackson as his soulmate. You hear them in his promise to drain the swamp and make America great again. Many of the specifics seem to reinforce this point. Reconstructive leaders characteristically target the courts, trying to pack the judiciary with judges who will defer to their new dispensation in political affairs. Reconstructive leaders characteristically gut the residual institutional infrastructure of the old order, seeking to dislodge those deep state supports for the politics of the past. Reconstructive leaders characteristically build new parties, parties capable of sustaining their hold on political power and perpetuating the new commitments. All of this is on Trump's plate. The point I want to underscore, however, is that historically, at least, reconstruction has turned less on ambition than on structure and opportunity. And if we look more closely at the leadership patterns structured by political time, 
we find that Trump's ambitions don't quite square with his circumstances. American government and politics have had a regime-based structure, one punctuated by those rare reconstructive breakthroughs. So in the post-Reagan era, as in all other sequences following a major reset, we find two types of leaders. There are affiliated leaders, like the two Bushes, presidents who felt compelled by their political attachments to affirm the commitments and vitality of the last reconstruction and who pledged to continue to extend to update the received agenda. Affiliated leaders are constrained by orthodoxy. Their shared problem is to sustain the inherently disruptive effects of political presidential action while affirming the collective purposes of the regime they represent. The characteristic political effect of these presidents is schismatic. They tend, to, they tend to fracture their own support. Now, these sequences also feature opposition leaders, leaders like Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, presidents who preempted the received agenda and offered an alternative. Preemptors test the resilience of the regime by actively exploiting stresses and strains within the coalition that supports it. They're less conflicted by their own disruptive effects, but they too are constrained. Their threat to established orthodoxies risks a political backlash, a reunification and resurgence of the regime's defenders. As presidential leadership unfolds in political time and the nation drifts away from the priorities stamped on government by the last reconstruction, the opportunity to act on these two dispositions change. Affiliated leaders characteristically find it harder to hold the old regime together, and they act out increasingly convoluted renditions of orthodoxy. By the same token, opposition leaders find that they can offer more direct and fundamental challenges. So Obama mounted a more direct challenge to conservative orthodoxy than Bill Clinton had, just as Nixon mounted a more direct challenge to the liberal orthodoxy of his day than Dwight Eisenhower had. And if we reach back further, Woodrow Wilson mounted a more direct challenge to the Republican orthodoxy of the post-Civil War era than had Grover Cleveland. Obama didn't break through decisively to secure his alternative, neither did Nixon or Wilson. But together with the orthodox innovators, these heterodox preemptors pushed and pulled at the old formulas in increasingly unsettling ways. Successive rounds of affiliated and opposition leadership have, in this way, propelled American politics toward its characteristic flashpoints, wherein the nominal affiliate of an old and fractured regime foments a nationwide crisis of legitimacy and seals the opposition's case for a forthright repudiation of the old orthodoxy. Hitherto, the regimes that have dominated American politics for extended periods of time have not given way until some late regime affiliate demonstrates by his own actions that the old orthodoxy is bankrupt and the old order beyond repair. The impact of these late regime affiliates has been disjunctive. Their convoluted struggles to stretch the old formulas, finally exposing the exhaustion of any such effort. That is what opens the door to an opposition breakthrough, to a leader who can forthrightly repudiate received commitments authoritatively redefine the terms and conditions of legitimate national government, install new coalitions and institutional arrangements that reset the clock. These sequences repeat over the whole course of American political history, 
Political time accounts for a curious historical coupling of incumbents that we find in our history. Adams and Jefferson, Adams and Jackson, Buchanan and Lincoln, Hoover and Roosevelt, Carter and Reagan. The first president in each pair is an affiliated leader who appears in over his head, unwittingly magnifying the political predicament that brought him to power. The next president in each pairing, an opposition leader who stands out from the pack as the transformative figure, the undisputed master of the leadership arts, the touchstone of a new standard. These political pivots are moment, moments of great uncertainty and high anxiety, much like the current one. But note as well that by these additional features, the Trump presidency is oddly configured for a political reconstruction. He's in a position very different from Jefferson, Jackson, Lincoln, Franklin Roosevelt, Ronald Reagan. Each of them hailed from the opposition to a long dominant party. Each drew his authority to repudiate and reconstruct from a late regime affiliate who had lost all credibility. Now Obama had not lost all credibility. And it's Trump, not Obama, who's affiliated with the long dominant party. That would seem to place Trump on the wrong side of any momentous pivot. Much of the interest in this case, I think, lies in this dissonance between Trump's circumstances and his revealed ambitions. Now, presidents also act in secular time. And secular time registers important differences between leadership today and leadership in prior sequences. It describes a universe of presidential action that's grown progressively more inclusive in its interests and purview, more thickly institutionalized and more interdependent in its operations. All this has made other actors more resourceful and secure in resisting presidential designs. At the same time, the national government has become more reliant on central management and direction, and that has made presidents more resourceful too, more independent in pursuing their own designs. These developments complicate the rhythms of political time. Affiliated leaders, though characteristically hobbled in the exercise of power by their connection to established formulas, have found their leadership position bolstered by the enhanced powers of their office, powers in political mobilization, agenda setting, and central management. With more resources at their disposal for independent action, they found affiliation less of a constraint on their actions. Concurrently, opposition leaders have found their efforts to challenge, dislodge, and reconstruct hampered by the institutional thickening of American government and the resources of other actors and interests to hold their own ground. So paradoxically, changes in secular time would seem to allow for a more routine expression of transformative ambitions while also dimming the prospects for any decisive reconstructive breakthroughs. That's another thing to keep in mind when thinking about Donald Trump. Projected forward, secular time, secular changes in the presidential office and in, many, and in American politics at large foretell a waning of political time. To the extent that opposition leaders face new constraints in reconstruction and affiliated leaders enjoy new resources for independent action, we should observe a secular washing out of one's pronounced differences in the politics presidents make. The question raised about the Trump administration in this regard is whether secular changes have finally robbed the organizing categories of regime politics, the very categories 
of affiliation and opposition, of any perceivable effect at all. So in this talk, I want to use these contretemps of political and secular time to sort through what's new in Trump's leadership and what's not, and to mark the significance of what's new against a baseline of characteristically configured political effects. Begin with political time. If we superimpose the most recent sequence of presidents, the one that followed upon the Reagan reconstruction, on the prior sequence, the sequence of presidents that followed on the New Deal reconstruction, we find that, just line them up, we find that they align pretty well in both the transformative leader passed power to an affiliate. After that, there was an opposition victory, a first preemption, Eisenhower, Clinton, Next, we saw a second round of orthodox innovation and then a second preemption, Nixon and Obama. Now, there's nothing, I don't want to say there's anything preordained about this. The back and forth in the post-Civil War sequence was more extended and circuitous, but the basic patterns hold. Affiliates mounting ever more awkward defenses of the old order, preemptors mount more forcefully exposing its vulnerabilities. And if we reach back further still into the 19th century, we find that the sequence of presidents that followed Andrew Jackson's reconstruction followed a rotation very similar to the two most recent ones. Donald Trump is readily identifiable in these lines of succession. Political time tags him a late regime affiliate. And I take it as a strong point in support of this framing that it's hard to imagine a more perfect fit to that type. Now, before I say more about that, consider the counterfactual. As I see it, the abnormal, off-the-charts outcome in 2016 was not the one that occurred, but the one that most Americans at the time were expecting. Throughout the 2016 election season, I was pointing to an impending victory for Hillary Clinton as a historical anomaly, a conspicuous and potentially significant wrinkle in political time. That's because Obama's leadership had played out so remarkably true to type. Though Obama had hinted at reconstructive possibilities, he hadn't dislodged the political arrangements or policy priorities that we identify with the conservative regime. Indeed, the threat of a political transformation under Obama may have been the only thing capable of snapping the old and battered ranks of the conservative coalition back together after the traumas of the presidency of George W. Bush. A look back at earlier sequences shows that this, is too, is what we would expect. No second-round opponent has ever succeeded in reconstructing the old order. True to form, the Republicans shut down Obama's avowed ambition to, in Obama's words, to do for progressives what Reagan did for conservatives. What was unusual in the fall of 2016, however, was that Obama seemed poised, nonetheless, to pass power to Hillary Clinton his designated heir. No preemptive leader had ever done that. A Clinton victory wouldn't have altered Obama's record retroactively, turning his preemptive performance into a reconstructive one. It might, however, offer some evidence for this long-anticipated secular erosion of categorical differences among leaders observed in political time. From a Hillary Clinton victory in 2016, we might have pulled forward an intimation from the presidential election of 2000, when Al Gore also won the popular vote and nearly succeeded in taking the handoff from another preemptor, Bill Clinton. 
In Gore's dubious loss and Clinton's victory, we might have marked an office growing more receptive to this testy opposition style of leadership alongside a polity growing more resistant to any decisive resolution of its threat to established interests and priorities. In effect, we might have observed a secular convergence on this preemptive type. Now, I point to this counterfactual because Clinton's near miss is not the only hint in current affairs of a conflation of presidential leadership into a kind of perpetual political preemption. But more on that later. What actually happened, the election of Donald Trump, was shocking confirmation that the clock at work in presidential leadership was keeping political time after all. A figure true to type and right on schedule, Trump is in political time a clear and easy mark. Taking office 36 years after the Reagan Revolution, he set up the conservatives' fourth administration. The old order had by this time been through a lot. The previous affiliate, Bush 43, had dutifully upheld the orthodoxy of tax cuts, deregulation, and military spending, but his update, compassionate conservatism, included initiatives in education and healthcare that drove deep resentments through his party's hardcore. Bush's support for massive federal intervention to counter the collapse of the banking system in the fall of 2008, that might have proven the last straw for diehard conservatives had it not come so late in his term. As it happened, the Democrats' sweep in the elections of that year redirected the conservative firestorm away from Bush's heresies and onto Obama's. Obama was the one who bore the brunt of responsibility for dealing with the financial meltdown and the Great Recession, and that afforded Republicans an easy target around which to knit their fragile coalition back together. But Obama gave as good as he got. Even with the Republican ranks united against him, he proved relentless in exposing weaknesses in the conservatives' rendition of national commitments and priorities. His support for economic stimulus, health care reform, tax reform, banking reform, environmental reform, all of this intensified the pressure on conservative orthodoxy. Obama oversaw a slow but steady economic recovery. He held his ground under severe attack, emerging relatively unscathed and relatively popular, 57%, after eight years in office. Though Republicans thwarted him at every turn, Obama's leadership rendered conservative orthodoxy a cave of winds, lots of bluster, raging through what appeared a hollow core. In the run-up to the 2016 election, Reaganism was falling prey to the fate of all old regimes. Rife with sectarian divisions, conservatives failed to coordinate around a common carrier and lost control of their message. The moderate contenders for the Republican nomination, Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, John Kasich, they found little traction. Ted Cruz sought to mobilize the radicalized segments, the Tea Party insurgency, the Freedom Caucus, the religious conservatives, but his campaign sputtered as well. All of this played out against the telltale sign of a regime lingering beyond its relevance and losing all sense of itself. Takeover by a political outlier. Trump was a Republican contender far outside the mainstream of conservative politics. He swept the field of more orthodox candidates, hardly ever mentioning Reagan's name. Of all the Republican hopefuls, Trump best understood the political significance of the Great Recession and the Obama interregnum. Not unlike Bernie Sanders, the Democratic insurgent, Trump knew instinctively how far American politics had drifted from the old conservative nostrums and how threatening its embrace 
of market efficiencies, global competition, and trickle-down benefits had become. He sees that opening to an alternative, a more stridently nationalist appeal. He addressed the hollowed-out remains of the party he proposed to lead with a new dispensation, one that hinted at a reconfiguration of old alliances. He dared the stalwarts to stop him. Now, this is a good place to pause and reflect more generally on these late regime affiliates. They are an understudied lot. On the face of it, presidents like John Quincy Adams, Franklin Pierce, Herbert Hoover, Jimmy Carter, they seem to have little in common, and they seem to have little of interest to tell us, even more, they have little of interest to tell us about presidential leadership. Once in office, they prove to a man out of their depth. To the extent that they claim attention at all from historians, it's because they set the standard for failed leadership. They're the ones routinely singled out in every period as uniquely ill-equipped by inexperience and temperament to tackle the political demands of the presidency, leaders alienating even to the establishments they propose to represent. Republicans publicly blasting Trump as incompetent and untrustworthy bespeak a familiar moment in political time. That intraparty disaffection goes with the territory. But when we examine these late regime affiliates as a group, when we link them across historical periods as leaders who intervened at a similar moment in a political sequence, then their special talents come more readily to the fore. These were all strange picks to lead a party that had long dominated American government and politics. They were all outliers, figures at best tangential to the party establishment. By the same token, the fact that they got themselves into the, into the office in these circumstances should caution against any quick dismissal of their political insights and skills. Each of them had a keen sense of the strains that had been rending the old alliances and the, of the vulnerabilities of clinging to time-worn messages. Each deftly exploited their party's exhaustion and turned its incompetence to their own advantage. Let me take a historical example the most robust party of the bunch, the Republican Party of the 1920s. What was said about Herbert Hoover's hostile takeover of the GOP? As the renowned commentator William Allen White assessed the situation in June of 1928, Hoover, these are White's words, Hoover was opposed by a powerful conspiracy of state Republican bosses, opposed by the great majority of Republican politicians, opposed by the large financial and business interests, and the whole agrarian interest regarded him with suspicion and dislike. How then to explain his, the success of his bid for party leadership? White goes on. Numerous and formidable as, as his opponents were, they were poorly equipped to play the game effectively. There was no alternative candidate upon whom the unplacated politicians, the suspicious businessmen, and the aggrieved agrarians could agree. So this too was a party that had, despite its long hold on government, lost the wherewithal to control itself. Over the course of its long run as the governing party, it too had become an empty shell. Mr. Hoover's qualities, White concluded, enabled him to take advantage of the sterility of the older American politics. This is what late regime affiliates do. Each deftly seized upon the sterility of the older American politics. Each exploited the opening provided by festering weaknesses in the establishment they proposed to lead. Their bold, if awkward, offer was to save the old party from itself, to prove against mounting skepticism that it could address new issues for a new day in a new way. 
each used his outlier status as an asset, turning it into a rationale for extending the lease on the old order. Their common insight was that the old formulas no longer resonated. Their common wager was that the time was ripe for someone on the establishment's periphery to take charge and save the old order from itself. All of them sensed that they were on the cusp of something new. Each pushed something pointedly different, candidly unorthodox. Claiming authority on this murky field of regime ennui, they blurred the line between affiliation and opposition, between orthodox innovation and outright repudiation. They imagined a revolution from within. They thought that they could get a regime long accustomed to rule to reconstruct itself. This shared project lends considerable interest to these late regime affiliates, I think, the uniform failure of their efforts to follow through notwithstanding. They were all misfits. Adams, Hoover, Carter, they were, like Trump, conspicuous loners, promoting idiosyncratic credentials and independent appeals. Their affiliation was strained from the get-go, each of them provoking thinly-veiled disdain from their fellow partisans. In their various efforts to finesse the categories of affiliation and opposition, each of these leaders sold themselves to the public on some inimitable capacity, what White referred to as a personal quality. In place of partisanship, they boasted of an uncanny set of faculties and skills allegedly missing in the regular politicians of their day. Hoover was the product of his own public relations campaign, a self-packaged wonder boy of uncertain political pedigree, a successful businessman, an engineer, an administrator in both Democratic and Republican administrations. He had proven his capacity to cut through business as usual. He put himself forward as the master technician and problem solver. Carter also. His resume listed experience as a businessman, an engineer, a farmer, a scientist, a southerner, an executive, a technocrat, a populist, a born-again Christian, which is all to say that the last thing Carter wanted to claim for himself was any association with his party. John Quincy Adams was the original misfit, son of the last Federalist president. He had been thrown out of the party of his father for bucking its orthodoxy. Monroe selected Adams to be a Secretary of State precisely because he didn't want anyone in that office who could plausibly be thought of as a good candidate for the succession. But in 1824, Adams was able to exploit rampant sectarianism within the Republican ranks to defy the odds and follow Monroe in the Republican line. He presented the nation with an amalgam of possibilities, his orthodoxy distilled down to a rarefied brand boasting talent and virtue alone. Now, Trump can't boast of virtue, but this is a political type, not a personality type. Like the others, his appeal lay in the fact that he was only routinely connected, he was only tenuously connected to the establishment he proposed to lead. Trump drew much of his authenticity from the fact that he had never held a government office. His ideology was opaque, his early views on key issues leaning left, not right. He put himself forward in 2016 as a man of independent means who could go into government unbeholden to anyone. Another wonder boy, he boasted of a success as a businessman, master of the art of the deal. Smarter than the regular politicians, he promised always to get the better end of the bargain. Even when accepting the nomination of the Republican Party, he kept his distance from the party faithful. His message to the convention, I alone can fix it. That's straight out of the script of the late regime affiliates. 
of the outsider offering to save the old order from itself. Like others of his type, Trump, too, pressed an agenda that rubbed against received political alignments and issue divisions. He boasted of what he called his un-Republican views. I'm not going to cut Social Security like every other Republican, and I'm not going to cut Medicare and Medicaid. For the faithful, he did hold out judges, tax cuts, deregulation, defense spending, the repeal of Obamacare. But his stances on immigration, trade, internationalism, his assurances about the social safety net, his pledge to replace Obamacare with something better, his forthright renunciations of Bush's war at Iraq, and his outreach to Vladimir Putin, all of this marked him as something very different. Now, what about impact? For all their brilliance and success in differentiating themselves from the regular party fair and crafting their own brand, improving its appeal, the leadership stance of these late regime affiliates has historically proven precarious in the extreme. In but not of the principal party of the long dominant regime, their common project has played out in a political no man's land. The critical politics for these late regime affiliates has always been lodged in that odd juxtaposition of the triumphant upstart against the insiders with whom they're nominally associated. Boasting something new, these presidents rely for practical support and political authority on politicians' intent on delivering a familiar product. Jimmy Carter put it this way, whether I wanted it or not, I inherited the Democratic Party. That was the biggest problem I had. It's been the characteristic problem. The common challenge for late regime affiliates has been to make good on the promise of a new dispensation while leading a party committed to the old dispensation. True to the loner status that propelled them into office, they tread on rarefied ground with no one to count on but themselves. Carter was continually pressed by skeptics to explain his relationship to the Democratic Party and to resolve the the incongruity straddled in his criticisms of the establishment he proposed to lead. His unfaltering response was to assert that he was the indispensable man, the only one who could make it work. There were, he said, no easy answers to the problems of the day, and that's why the country needed someone who was smart enough to figure it out. Why not the best was Carter's version of I alone can fix it. The common fate of these late regime affiliates speaks to political dynamics that have hitherto been emblematic of the American system as a whole. This is as close as our history gets us to the working definition of an impossible leadership situation. Unable either to confidently affirm the old order, as every affiliated leader must, or to forthrightly repudiate it, as a strong opposition leader can, the late regime affiliates have found their political identity grow more hopelessly obscure and idiosyncratic over the course of their term. If in this situation the president reaches out to his nominal allies and aligns himself too closely with the old agenda, he risks losing the distinctive project that brought him into office and opening himself to the charge that he's just another symptom of the problems he proposed to surmount. But if he disavows his nominal allies and tries to subordinate them to his new dispensation, he risks political isolation and vital support. We're still in the middle of Trump's rendition of the type, but we've seen this movie play out before, and it's always ended the same way. His administration opened true to script. It's year-long self-inflicted failure to repeal and replace Obamacare, an unmistakable expression of regime disorientation and self-immolation. 
First, the congressional party stripped their new leader of any pretense of substituting something better for the Affordable Care Act. Then they failed to deliver on their promise to get rid of it. Time and again, the hapless efforts of these leaders to deliver on the promise of rehabilitation and repair has registered with the same profound political effect. Instead of fixing things up, giving the regime a new lease on life, these presidents have consistently pressed their parties to the breaking point and emboldened their opponents. Internal wrangling over the new dispensation has pushed the regime to indict itself and fomented a political implosion. To be sure, the rise of an outlier bent on remaking a long-dominant party has been a reliable signal of a great departure soon to come. But the leadership of these presidents characteristically, the leadership of these presidencies characteristically drives to those breakpoints. But thus far, it's always played out on the wrong side of the pivot. It's the colossal failure of these efforts that proves transformative, their political misfire opening the door to a more radical, thoroughgoing, and durable break. So if the clock at work in presidential leadership is still keeping political time, this case should be a pretty easy tell. The implications are clear, and they're not easily finessed. We would expect to see the Republican coalition implode under the pressures of Trump's leadership and for the president to go down with it. The key elements, the unorthodox affiliate, the strains mounting on our long-dominant party, the radicalization of the opposition party as the bearer of a genuine alternative, the addition of structural reforms to the opposition agenda like Supreme Court expansion the Democrats are talking about. All of these elements are circling a familiar scenario. And the expected outcome is, I think, still the most reasonable extrapolation. I can't rest the matter there, however. If nothing else, I'm constrained to take a deeper look by my own prior arguments about the significance of changes observed in secular time. Thus far, I've treated all these late regime affiliates the same. I haven't said anything about the developments that have been subtly reshaping these patterns of leadership and with them the dynamics of change and renewal <coughs> in the American system. The alternative scenarios implicit in these developments vary in their plausibility. But the Trump presidency does provide some supporting evidence for each of these, and that itself is suggestive of newly emergent possibilities. So at the risk of complicating what still seems to me a remarkably straightforward case, let me use the baseline expectations of late regime affiliation to consider the significance of the alternative outcomes now in view. The most glaring sign of something new in the political leadership of Donald Trump has been the weakness of regime stalwarts in pushing back against the unruly leader nominally affiliated with them. The never-Trump band of conservatives and the many Republican stalwarts in Congress who have despaired at Trump's rebranding efforts, that may attest to the inter-party stress characteristic of a regime crack-up. But what's more conspicuous in this instance is that no leading defender of the faith has been able to mobilize resistance to the takeover. Mitt Romney, the party's 2012 standard-bearer, did stage a frontal assault during the 2016 campaign. He re went on television to renounce Trump as a fraud. But after Trump won, Romney sought a position in his cabinet. Ted Cruz orchestrated another moment of high drama, publicly conceding his defeat at the Republican convention and then pointedly refusing to endorse its nominee. 
By 2018, however, Trump and Cruz were solidly allied. Republican Senator Jeff Flake defended the true faith in a book, Conscience of a Conservative. Then he retired. Republican Senator Bob Corker characterized the Trump White House as adult daycare for a man who threatens World War III. Then he retired. (laughs) The most formidable challenger, Republican Speaker Paul Ryan, ducked. Then he retired. Lindsey Graham didn't pick up the mantle from his bosom friend John McCain. Instead, he joined forces with the president who repeatedly demeans McCain. John Kasich simply wrings his hands. This acquiescence is extraordinary historically, a wrinkle of potentially great systemic significance. Now, there's a couple of interpretations. One interpretation, largely dismissive of any Trump effect, but not wholly discreditable, is that Trump's leadership posture is so detached from received conceptions of alternatives that he can vindicate himself simply by racking up wins. It doesn't much matter what they affirm or what they repudiate. Allegedly, the Republican leadership in Congress has understood this, and by giving Trump victories on things that don't, that don't threaten the party establishment, they've avoided any need to confront him. We know that Paul Ryan sidetracked Trump's wall, convincing the president to move ahead first on established party priorities, like cutting taxes and repealing Obamacare. Mitch McConnell, too, is said to deftly sideline action on presidential proposals that might divide the party, all the while allowing Trump to bask in the glory of accomplishments more consistent with the party's purposes, judicial appointments, military spending, and deregulation. Congressionally tamed in this way, Trump would indeed present a deviation from late regime expectations, but I don't think a very significant one. Open-ended in his commitments and diffused by his allies as a catalyst to disjunction, he would appear an unwitting accomplice in efforts to extend the regime on the old familiar ground. Consigning all that's different in Trumpism to mere bluster, Trump himself would become, in effect, just another in the line of orthodox innovators. Well, how convincing is this? In the first place, this fusion of Trumpism to the congressional Republican agenda itself seems problematic. It puts at risk the reconfiguration of political possibilities that underlay much of his initial political support, and it sells short his original insight into the liabilities of strict adherence to the old faith. At the same time, the midterm election results dimmed any prospect that congressional leaders might suffer Trump with impunity. The Democrats' Democrats sweep in the 2018 elections cut deep, and a new, more radicalized Democratic majority in the House is likely to draw out issues that might divide the Republican ranks. More telling still is that Trump has, since the midterm, been less willing to play the useful idiot. He shed the bridge builders within his own administration and freed himself for more independent action. He moved immediately after the midterms to reassert his distinctive identity against the designs of his congressional leadership. Dismissing Leader McConnell's warnings of internal party division, the president pressed Republicans to the point of confrontation over funding for his border wall, and forced a government shutdown. His actions since on Obamacare repeal, support for the Saudis in Yemen, on appointments to the Fed, all these have exacerbated tensions within his party. On these counts, there seems to be little deviation from late regime travails. There is, however, a second contrary explanation for what's happening within the Republican ranks, 
And this one strikes me as more significant developmentally. This is that Trump has so effectively secured his own brand with voters in the Republican base that his fellow partisans in Congress, far from being free to manipulate him, feel compelled to go along with him. 44 years ago, Jimmy Carter showed how the new primary system for nominating presidential candidates could loosen collective party bonds and produce renegade candidates with the power to defeat more orthodox ones. Ted Kennedy's failed challenge to Carter's renomination stands as a warning against stalwart defiance of any such president, even when the incumbent appears vulnerable nationally. In Trump's case, the relationship between the president and his electoral base has grown even more direct, unmediated, and personal. With 90% approval among identified Republicans, the ground for a challenge from within has been all but eliminated. Trump can hold recalcitrant partisans in Congress to his agenda by threatening them with primary challengers. On these counts, American politics may have drifted so far beyond the collective constraint of partisan affiliation on presidential action that the defining disability of late regime leadership no longer applies. We may be witness to the long-awaited arrival of the president as party unto himself with all the independence in action that that implies. By this reckoning, an uncontested Trump makeover of the Republican Party would mark a profound shift in the historical relationship between the presidency and the American political system. The rise of these presidential parties and the concomitant weakening of political affiliation as a constraint on presidential action, these are some of the most conspicuous trends to be tracked through secular time. With each iteration of the type, the late regime affiliate has been able to deploy newfound political resources under his direct control and to assert greater independence from received formulas and nominal allies. Trump's case has drawn out these patterns, setting a new standard for wild card status in a late regime affiliate. Just as surely as his presidency has confirmed the centrality of this intra-party contest in the politics of leadership for such presidents, the security he draws from his own personal following points to a significant change in the parameters of that contest. Nothing has been more essential to the regime-based structure of presidential politics in America than political affiliation as a leadership identifier, and nothing is more striking than the weakness of political affiliation in Trump's identity as a leader. Eliminate affiliation as a factor constraining the politics of leadership in the late stages of a regime cycle, and the potential deviations from type begin to range the whole spectrum of possibilities. The most plausible of these deviations is Trump's re-election. As a rule, affiliated leaders have a hard time getting elected twice. The schismatic effects of their first turn tends to weaken them politically. That pattern is even more pronounced among the late regime affiliates. None in that group has ever been elected twice. The contrast with opposition leaders is stark. Whether strongly reconstructive or merely preemptive, every opposition leader who was elected to the office in the first term and lived through his first term was elected to a second term. This historic difference speaks to the greater independence of the opposition stance and thus to the superior capacities of that stance to sustain the disruptive effects of presidential action. If Trump remakes the Republican Party and wins re-election, he will have defied that clear marker of the difference between affiliated and opposition leadership. Mobilizing a new Republican Party to confirm his leadership in a second term, that, developmentally speaking, would be a significant move off the charts. 
confirming a newfound potential of incumbents to build their own party and stand their own ground, Trump's election would foretell, at the very least, the rise of far more idiosyncratic forms of presidentialism to come. Why not go a step further? At the far reaches of plausibility is the potential for Trump, re-elected to a second term, to drive the system all the way to reconstruction and reset the clock for decades to come. This is a possibility flagged by his rhetoric, flagged at the outside, implicit in his attack on the judiciary and the rest of the deep state. The problem for late regime affiliates has not been the absence of transformative ambitions. It's been the implosive political effect of trying to negotiate such a reconstruction from within the ranks of a long dominant party. If Trump truly is a party unto himself, if he has at his disposal resources sufficient to mobilize his own following and neutralize discontent within his ranks, might he not just avoid disjunction but skip directly to reconstruction? Certainly a reconstruction consummated by a president nominally affiliated with the old order would punctuate the rise of presidentialism in America with a stunning display of the newfound transformative capacities of self-generated political will. Still having just raised this possibility and pointed to the characteristic elements in view, I have to say that this seems to me highly unlikely. It seems to wildly inflate Trump's strengths. Recall that he lost the election, uh, he lost the popular vote to Hillary Clinton by three million votes. His margin in the Electoral College rested on a few thousands in a handful of states. Despite his relentless repudiations of his predecessor, Trump's case for the unmitigated failure of the Obama administration never aligned with the lived experiences of most Americans, and it's not lent much additional authority to his alternative. His approval numbers have never broken 50%. His political base has not expanded appreciably, even under conditions of relative peace and prosperity. Trump showed significant political weakness in leadership even when the Republicans controlled the entire government. He's weaker now after the midterms. Moreover, consider that second marker of secular change, the thickening of institutional supports for the interests and priorities that this administration has besieged. That strikes me as dispositive on the question of a Trump reconstruction. Even if the Democrats squander the historic opportunity at hand and Trump wins re-election, the likelihood that he can durably marginalize or decisively subvert the political and institutional resistance to his designs seems slim. Rather than reconstruct and reset the clock, a second Trump term would seem to augur something similar to what I was thinking about in reference to a Clinton victory in 2016, that is, the erosion of these regime-based distinctions between affiliated and opposition leadership, and the convergence on something akin to the preemptive type, on forceful but unresolved agitation by political mongrels. And that leads me to the final deviation that's figured prominently in this administration, removal. No affiliated leader has been impeached or even seriously threatened by impeachment. All the presidents in American history who have been seri in serious danger of removal were opposition leaders whose antics provoke constitutional reactions from still potent establishments. In other words, impeachment has historically been a risk run in preemptive politics. It appears as backlash against an overreaching opponent of the regime a resilient system's ultimate defense against the predations of a political wild card. Even before the results of the Mueller investigation were known, impeachment was hard to square with Trump's circumstances. 
But here again, the prominence of this threat in what would seem such an inhospitable environment points to changes that seem to be eroding differences associated with the regime-based structure of presidential politics. The uptick in impeachment threats over the past half century is striking in this regard, and it may point to a correspondingly profound shift in system dynamics. Here I see another marker of the secular drift toward the preemptive type, toward leaders of independent appeal and uncertain affiliation of unsteady, systemically provocative opposition. Now, any one of these deviations from the baseline projections of political time would signal something new afoot. Each would, by degrees, demonstrate the effects of secular developments and eroding traditional dynamics of change and renewal in the American system. The fact that we can point to elements in the present state of play that support each of these various scenarios attests to the impact of long-running trends, most especially to the secular weakening of affiliation as a constraint on presidential action. If there's something new in Trump's leadership that claims special attention, something that can't be bracketed off as a character issue, a personality disorder, or a historical fluke, it lies here in this forceful push against the boundary condition of affiliation and its expression of newfound independence in presidential action. Independence not only from party ties but from established authority of any kind portends far more idiosyncratic forms of leadership to come. But to end on a hopeful note, I'll reserve my final remarks for what the standard rhythms of political time predict. Trump's success in consolidating his hold over a new, even more radically skewed Republican Party would be remarkable, but it doesn't preclude a defeat in 2020. My wager is that when all is said and done, this, this case will confirm the regime-based structure of presidential leadership. Despite all its wrinkles, Trump, Trump is clearly recognizable in that frame, as is the entire sequence of presidents since the Reagan Revolution. This president is a late regime affiliate, and my guess is that his administration will continue to play out as it has, remarkably true to type. Well, Steve, thanks uh, very much. It's a terrific uh, talk and presentation. I think um, maybe I'll uh, exercise the, um, the chair's prerogative here and ask uh, maybe a I don't know if it's a it's a question or a comment. Maybe it's a comment that you could comment on. Um, you know, I was I was thinking, scribbling while you were talking. There's there's something um, very reassuring um, uh, in your take that is kind of Trump as a you know 21st century version of a late regime um, affiliate, and in, in that you know. Um, uh, that you're kind of gives new meaning to normalizing Trump because you're you're kind of normalizing him as a political type, um, but it's at another level it's it's only reassuring up to a point I think um, because um, I mean two of these four late affiliates to use your terminology that is um, Buchanan and Hoover. Um, not only proved to be politically hapless, but their haplessness nearly wrecked the republic. Um, and so while it's, 
It's great. You know, it's, I mean, I think this, the political time framework works well. I, I feel a little bit, as I'm thinking about this, that we're playing with, like, political dice here. I mean, 50-50 is not, like, great odds, you know? I mean, and so I think the, you know, if there's a, a question here, yeah, so let's say Trump loses in, um, in 2020, um, but he may have uncorked things here. Um, you know, it takes a different form. In Buchanan's case, it took a, a different form than it did in the case of Hoover. And, you know, over on this side of the pond, one thinks a lot about the international damage that Trump is doing and that maybe he has set in motion something that is, you can't put the genie back in, you know. So, I don't know. It's a comment. Maybe you care to comment on it. I mean, even on just this kind of, yeah, he might go down, but, you know, Buchanan went down and Hoover went down, but it was a mess. Well, right. <laughs> and, um, yes, I, okay. I agree. <laughs> well, I, maybe there, yeah, right. So there's no, there's no um, denying that presidents have real effect. All presidents get a lot of stuff done, whether they succeed or fail in leadership. They get a lot done. That's why. And they're all profoundly disruptive of the status quo, all of them. And there's no, uh, there's no putting, putting those things back together. So the next president, whoever that is, will have to deal with a new, the new situation that's left in their wake. Um, yes. Okay. We'll open it up. Um, this gentleman right in the center here. Wait for a mic, okay? And if you could just um, briefly uh, introduce yourself would be great. Okay, <clears throat> thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm Li. I'm from China. I visited professor here. And thank you for your fascinating historical <clears throat> explanation. It reminds me a lot, especially the past UK-US relation and nowadays China-US relations. In the 19th century, the UK definitely the great power, number one. In the 20th century, with the two disastrous world war, the US took the first place. And now something changed. I mean that I think that UK has accepted your position. Now China become the second. And with Trump to be the president, and he's having trade war with almost the biggest country, especially towards China. My question is that, how do you find Trump's policy? Is it possible for China-US to build a relation like the UK-US with the nowadays human being wisdom? Thank you. I'm not sure that I, I have a good um, response to that. Is it possible that the uh, that China and the United States could enter into a relationship like the historic relationship between the United States and the UK? <laughs> um, probably Peter is better better equipped to answer that. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't hold my breath. No. Um, uh, other other hands questions? Right down here. My name is Matthew. This is, I'm a member of the public. 
um, two questions actually. Um, first of all, there is now a, appears to be a very heavy hierarchical element in the leadership of the world. People who write the system who don't appreciate the vocation of leadership. And Trump seems to stand up against this, and it seems to be very important to the American people. And I wondered if you could care to comment, because it seemed to be unprecedented. And the second point was um, this disjointed behavior between the leadership and the parties. I wondered if you could care to comment on the behavior of British political parties and their approach to the referendum. Well, I've been here since January, and you know, when I left, um, my colleagues said, well, you can't talk about the dysfunctions of the American system because you're going to a place that makes America look good. Um, uh, well, right, so I do think that there are, you know, if, we, if I wasn't talking about presidential politics, I was talking about um, the plight of Western nations generally, I would point to secular trends that are... Um, Pulling out, pulling against institutions, pulling against institutions um, uh, in profound, in profound ways that uh, presidents, you know, the, the presidents are just part of that problem. Uh, so yeah, I think that there are profound similarities between what's happening in the United States and what's happening in the UK right now, but I'm not sure that they relate to. Uh, the politics of presidential leadership in any way. And on Direct the, way, anyway. And on the, the first part of the question was on um, Trump standing up to... An unprecedented hierarchical And how unprecedented is that in the American context? Not, because there's Jackson... Right. Well, you know, every time you see a picture of Trump in the White House, Andrew Jackson is in the background. And he's like, this is his soulmate. And this was, you know, throw the elites out. Right? The attack on the deep state. And, uh, right, on the, on the governing classes. Other hands. I'm, I'm looking. I got a lot of men raising their hands. So, what's it? Too many blokes. <laughs> Too many blokes. Um, there we go. Thank you. I can just chat. Can I just chat? Mm, uh, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's actually, it's on a podcast, so, and that was just on a podcast, so. All right, then. Uh, um, <laughs> so, uh, I'm Josephine. I'm a PhD student at UCL. Um, you obviously use a very interesting schema to understand uh, American politics, American presidential politics. I wonder what you think of uh, Gary Gersel's notion of political orders and this notion that we're seeing a neoliberal order and that Trump could potentially be a break with that order. Do you have a thoughts on that? Uh, <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts about that. Uh, um, yes, I mean, Gary's... Uh, the rise and decline of the New Deal order and then the rise and decline of the uh, neoliberal order, as he describes it, are very much uh, uh, compatible with these regime cycles. Although uh, the way presidents interact with them is not exactly, uh, not exactly but it's, it's similar in spirit. And the question is, why does American politics have this 
why does American politics have this regime-based structure? It, you know, I'm often asked, well, doesn't this apply to other countries? And I don't really think it It's a peculiar American thing that, you know, these regimes run themselves into the ground and then suddenly the system gets reconfigured. It's a curious dynamic. Um, I, think it ha- I think it very much has to do with the fragmented constitutional system. It's very difficult to change. So once you get these breakthrough moments and you get a new set of commitments locked in, they tend to persist even as the country is changing, these things tend to persist institutionally, and that builds up these ten- these points of these characteristic flashpoints. Uh, so I think that that is a kind of curious and characteristic feature of the American constitutional system. Although, clearly, you know, relations between successors and predecessors, which is very much at issue here. I mean, you see those. You see those dynamics. At that level, you see dynamics play it elsewhere, like Margaret Thatcher and John Major. Okay, now let's come down here. Lloyd. Um, I'm Lloyd Gruber from our International uh, Development Department. I'm also a member of the public. Uh, (laughs) You you said, I love the talk. I I especially like the, the, the end where you were ending on a hopeful note, but I'm still not feeling all that hopeful. Uh, so I want to just probe, probe you on this. Maybe I'll feel better. So the most hopeful thing you said, it seemed to me, was that this is the way that it often works. You get this aberrant or seemingly aberrant figure like Trump, uh, and he's elected, it's a, he's elected to an impossible situation as part of why he was elected. And he can't fix it, and so there's this big upheaval. Uh, so... Tell me how that's going to go, because it seems to me that if he loses in 2020, whoever takes the mantle, whoever she or he, uh, is going to is going to have an equally impossible situation, maybe made more impossible because of all those Supreme Court justices and and all the rest. So I understand that there's there are these cycles, but could the difference now be that this impossible situation? It's going to be with us for a while. There's, there's no way out. Well, so um, I first started talking about political time just before Bill Clinton was elected. I, this scheme is like 27 years old. And here, I just wanted to play out what this scheme would predict. I mean, not it's curious that, you know, that since that since it was published, right, it's been a remarkably familiar pattern. And in this pattern, Trump is a disjunctive leader. The the um, the order would implode. Now, I still think that that's likely to happen, but. I also recognize that one thing that has happened over the course of the 20th century is it's been very difficult for any leader to break through that the, again, part of the fragmented American political system, there are so many interests or institutionalized already incorporated into the system. It's very difficult to have these wholesale, you know, why is it that 
are these ide- the ideal typical reconstructions are 19th century examples. Jackson, right? All he had to do was get rid of a bank, right? Reconfigured the whole thing, right? Right? Uh, you get to Franklin Roosevelt. He's being, he was defeated in the party purge. He was defeated in the court battle. He was defeated in his reorganization act, right? He's... All those other institutions now are much stronger and able to resist presidents. Look at Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, I do think that Ronald built a new dominant party, reconfigured political priorities, but he didn't dislodge any interest of vital significance to the old order. And that's part of the problem because, you know, you have this conservative regime with this government that's supporting all this liberal stuff. So I agree that this kind of thickening, this inability of presidents to purge the system is, I think, a systemic problem for the way in which American government has systematic, has historically regenerated itself. And it may be, you may be right that even if a Democrat wins, that you just can't, that's why I think it's so interesting what the Democrats are now reaching for these structural reforms like Supreme Court expansion. These are very court-packing, you know, more justices, two Supreme Courts, you know, constitutional changes is the only way you can reconfigure the system. I think that that's very interesting. I'm not sure that it'll happen, but I do think it's interesting that that's what's in the conversation. Now. Yeah, uh, how about the guy right back there on the white? Um, I'm Murray. I'm a journalist. I was just wondering, sort of, of all the announced 2020 Democratic candidates, who is the best sort of fitting of the mold of a historically successful opposition figure? Right. There you go. And there's two, and there's two new ones as of today. I heard. So, yeah, yeah Bennett came in, and uh, what's his name from Idaho or Montana? Montana. Anyway. Well. Um, so uh, one implication of what I just said was that the party should choose from the left wing, should choose the radical. But actually, if you look at reconstructive leaders, they tend to choose the more conservative candidates. Lincoln was a moderate who uh, beat the more radical Republicans. Right? Roosevelt was for a balanced budget in you know, 1932. He wasn't the radical candidate. So in the course of their, um, in the, over the course of their administrations, they radicalized. So I would think, now I'm going out on a limb, that someone who can unite the country or uh, reach across ideological divisions is probably the stronger candidate. And those are the kinds of candidates who, in the course of um, a reconstructive sequence, would, would naturally be radicalized. I could see Joe Biden right, winning as a kind of consensual figure, restoration figure, and yet leading an administration that's actually quite radical. Kelly. I think, thanks for the talk. Um, just two short questions. Uh, 
you know, really the only uh, aspect of your talk that struck me as implausible mm. was the depiction of Trump as a person who understood the weakness of the party and a strategy, as if, uh, you know, as if he really were someone from the political system who had observed it over time and uh, who had a diagnosis and was acting on Right. So this I find very implausible. And the only way it works for me is to imagine some shadowy figures in the back ground who have this kind of analysis. Steve that, Bannon has that. Yes, I know. Well, I didn't want to go straight there. but So <laughs> if you could address that, that would be interesting. And the other question is just the model of the party system. So it seems like the analysis of the presidency rides on an understanding of a two-party two party system in the U.S. where there are strong parties. So with the parties so weakened and, and weakening, um, you know, this is maybe the aspect of the model that seems like it may, may not be reproducing itself and to open to the most possibility. And so what I would like to ask is that, you know, we also have, though, in the U.S. a majoritarian system, so even the rules kind of, of for, for, force the voters toward this polarized logic of one candidate versus the other. So do we need actual parties that are working as constraints in the way the traditional way of thinking of a two-party system would work? Or is it just the logic of majoritarianism that will continue to produce this kind of constraint on the president that somehow grounds the system in prevents it from spinning completely out of control? Well, on the second question, yeah. So I think that um, what we've seen over the course of the 20th century, beginning with 1912 and the creation of the Bull Moose Party under Teddy Roosevelt, is the rise of presidential parties. And these are um, increasingly independent organizations. And I think that that is the most, that to me, Trump is the culmination of that. The president as a party unto himself. And the president who rhetorically governs for the base. That is, he says, you know, I'm delivering to the base. <laughs> this is really something new, right? And, well, it's, not some, it's something that's been coming for a long, and this is a kind of a cul culmination of what I would say these secular development with the weakening of parties as institutionally binding institutions, which is what they began as. Um, so I do think that that is something that could unravel this whole thing, create something, create something very different. Now on the other question, which is very interesting to me, I don't think that presidents, I don't think that presidents say, oh well, I'm in a disjunctive situation and therefore I'm gonna, the ones who win are, the, they're selected. Their message is selected, right? They, they, these kinds of messages are selected. So let me give Bill Clinton, right? I think that Bill Clinton thought he might be a reconstructive leader, you know, opposition leader, felt their pain, new agenda. In the middle of his term, Bill Clinton says to his advisors, he says, don't you know we're Eisenhower Republicans? Now, what does that mean? Now, I think that what he was saying is, well, just like Dwight Eisenhower, 
who was the first Republican to take control after the New Deal Reconstruction. Clinton is the first Democrat to take control after the Reagan Reconstruction. He couldn't do it. He couldn't repudiate the regime. Even if he wanted, you know, Eisenhower, we now know, was deeply conservative, but he couldn't. He knew that in order to succeed, he had to accept all of this stuff, as did Bill Clinton, who ends up, his major accomplishments are things that you would write out of, you know, crime bills, NAFTA, balanced budgets. So I don't think that it's, the presidents are thinking in these terms. I'm look. Uh, this is a. Um, these are systemic effects, and uh, the presidents who get into office are the ones who, who uh, land. Uh, the, the messages aren't that subtle, right? I can fix it. I know it's broken. I can fix it. It's not profound, but the the, the candidates who can, who articulate those messages tend to get selected at these moments. That's what I would say. So I don't think it takes a profound insight and intellect. I do think, though, that over the course of his term, Trump has gotten educated. (laughs) He does know how to reconstruct. And he's doing exactly what reconstructive leaders do. You attack the courts, you you gut the deep state, and you build a new party. Um, we've got, I can't tell, is your hand up? So we'll, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to group three questions and then you're going to decide how you want to respond. Here, here, and there was, and the gentleman back there. Go ahead. So the woman here in the center. Yeah. Hi, um, my name's Laura. I'm a master's student at UCL. Um, you spoke to the failure or kind of hesitance of the establishment within the Republican Party to act as a kind of opposition to Trump. If Trump does fail to secure a second term, with how successful Trumpism has kind of been with this base, do you see almost a doubling down of the Republican Party leaning into Trump and... On Trumpism? Yeah, and following that through, or do you see almost a mini kind of reconstruction within the Republican Party and a rebuilding or a rebirth... Um, because they seem to have been falling quite I think that if, I can tell you want to jump at that, but I want to get the other question. Oh, okay. So hold that for one second. Um, I think the gentleman right here and then, and then back there. So the, if you can bring the mic over to the gentleman in the corduroy, is it like corduroy jacket? Yes, right there. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I'm Fergus. I wrote a couple of essays in uni on your books. And following up to the question from over there, um, in 2007, David Axelrod gave an interview in which he said that he, both he and Obama had read your book and that they were, in fact, looking to cast him as a reconstructive president. In 2007, did you believe that he was going to be a reconstructive president? And if so, at what point did you stop believing? Hold it. One more question. So, uh, Professor Rupert Wallace... A member of the public, and it's precisely as a member of the public and an outsider that I put this question. I spend a lot of time in, uh, it, in American groups, and I'm quite old enough to remember, or in fact never to remember, such use of the word hatred and such divisiveness amongst American people about American politics. And my question is, I rather thought that you were being sanguine about a sort of return to cyclical normality, but this hatred and divisiveness, do you think actually American politics, politics 
the people, by the people, for the people, will in fact be changed finally. Will be changed? Well, it will be changed. We'll go through a final change. It will never recover into the normal cyclical uh, events that you, I thought, were proposing. Is this new? The aberration. You can respond to all three, or you know, and you'll bring it home. <laughs> um, well, I think you know. My sense is that if Trump loses and loses big, I think that he takes the party down with him. I, and I think that, um, you know, there's all these, co- you can read, listen to the uh, commentators about people buying into this, and it's like you're walking a plant, you keep buying into something that's about to fall off the cliff, right? Um, I kind of think that that's, the Republican Party would go through go through a long soul-searching exercise after a, a defeat, if there is a defeat. Um, when did I? So um, I wrote a very early essay on Obama, <laughs> uh, and and uh, I had it was four, a trick question. He knew four, <laughs> four different scenarios, and I think even then I said, uh, you know. He, One thing about these presidential parties is that this reconstructive rhetoric is now just part of the parlance. Everybody talks this way. Right? So if you just look at the situation, it doesn't look as reconstructive as the rhetoric. You know, I'm going to do for the progressives what Reagan did for the conservatives. Um, so, um, yeah, I think that Obama in some ways had a... <laughs> The fact that the financial meltdown, here's the thing. If the financial meltdown had happened in 2006, the Republicans would have owned it. And they would have owned the response to it. And Obama could have played the great repudiator. But it happened in the fall of 2008. And not only that, but Obama went to the Capitol to persuade Bush to sign on with Bush to the um, to the bailout. You know when Herbert Hoover said to Franklin Roosevelt, "Join me," and Franklin Roosevelt said, "You're on your own. I'm the president. I'm going to be the president with clean hands." I think that this sequence compromised the Obama administration from the beginning. It was always a national problem, a national response, a bipartisan uh, recovery effort. And that made it very difficult for him to play the great repudiator. Well, I think also the fact that he was the first black president made it very difficult for him to play the great repudiator. It had been very difficult to do what, you know, I welcome their, is Franklin, I welcome their hatred. The economic royalists are again, and I welcome their hatred. Obama just could, didn't have access to that kind of language. And the last question on hatred in uh-huh. American politics. Well, some of these questions, you know, um, are much more uh, attuned to other work that I did, other work that I'm doing about uh, the degeneration of the American institutional system at large. Um, so on that score, I'm pretty pessimistic. On this, you know, here's like a bright note, you know. 
don't worry. <laughs> if the system is really working the way it's always worked, this guy's going to go down. <laughs> and, and, um, but, you know, I have a whole bunch of other work which has a much less sanguine view of uh, prospects for American institutions. Steve, I want to thank you, and, and I hope you're right that it's, it's just the end of a cycle and not the end of the republic. Um, <laughs> please join me in thanking Mr. Hart.